You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, standardized testing! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'm your host tonight. With me today, I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jem Newman. Hello. <laughs> that's the sound of standardized testing <laughs> yeah. so with Jem going through MCAT hell uh, we decided to cover standardized testing this month because we thought it would be funny <laughs> thanks everybody it's funny to everybody except Jem who is taking a good evening out of his test prep for <laughs> talking about test prep uh, so I am going to do just a, a brief overview of how different Canadian provinces handle standardized testing uh, and I realized while I was writing this segment that mostly I just wanted to complain about the grade 12 exams that I had to go through. Yeah! <laughs> it's going to be cathartic for a lot of people on this episode. <laughs> so, Laura, did you have to do grade 12 exams? Yep. Those were the only standardized tests that I had to do because they kept coming in. There was grade 9 ones. There was grade 6 ones for sure. But mm-hmm. they always came in after I went through that grade. So I, I had those were the first huh. ones that I had to do. Yeah. That was not cool. And I, oh, it was English and math. English and math. That's what we had to do, yeah. I never had to do an English provincial standardized test, but I did have to do the grade nine math one. I remember Mm -hmm. that one. Uh, In Ontario or Manitoba? In Manitoba. But I did do IB, so there was Mm -hmm. lots of standardized testing there. Yeah, I'm too old to be standardized tested. Oh, that's not true. (laughs) Standardized (laughs) testing for so long. No, I did one in, it was a voluntary one in grade nine that we Hmm. did. You know, you had to be invited, the top 10% of math students. I don't know why I was in the top 10% of math students. I wasn't. (laughs) They had those, what were they called? Like the Gauss tests? Oh, yeah. But that sounds familiar, but I don't remember what it is. I seem to recall that they were optional, but there was like two of them a year or something like that. And it was just like a competition kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, that's that's what this math one was, I yeah. think. I remember <laughs> this one test when I was probably in grade four, where it was like a spelling test, but you you had to spell all the words in sequence. And the first one you got wrong, that is where your level was fixed. And it was so stressful. And I was so <laughs> mad when I got the one wrong, because I remember I wasn't the last one out, but I was like the second last one. And I wanted to be the winner of this <laughs> <laughs> totally not a competition. That's such a weird way to score that. It I guess it's very strange. It's, it's kind of like an eye exam in in that way. Yeah. Presumably, I guess uh, progressively harder. For right? sure. It started with like I <laughs> and us. <laughs> Standardized testing can be stressful for students. Who uh-huh. knew? <laughs> uh, in Manitoba, the the big provincial exams uh, are the grade 12 math and grade 12 English. 
And there are uh, different ones for every level of math. And they count toward a specified percentage of your final grade in the course as well. Uh, so for the lowest level of math, it's worth 20%. And then the others, it's worth 30% of your final grade. I remember this being extremely stressful for me. I was not a great math student. We did all kinds of like after school study sessions and stuff. Like our, our teacher was pretty good about helping us get prepared for it but it took so much time mm -hmm. away mm -hmm. from everything else we should have been learning to learn how to do this test definitely those numbers are funny because i like I, hearing you say 20 or 30 percent i was like that's great <laughs> only 20 or 30 percent <laughs> you see these university courses where it's 50 percent of my grade mm -hmm. is the final there was yeah. one course i took where it's 100 percent of your grade oh my goodness yeah. one exam yeah that was a computer science course wow yeah. so anyway my my most memorable part of the grade 12 math exam was after it had been graded and i was in a spare period in the library just reading my book minding my own business and my math teacher came into the library and handed me a piece of paper with the numbers 28 written on it. And he looked at me very solemnly and said, I'm really sorry, but this is your grade from the math exam. And then I was, you know, real sad. And he was like, oh, wait, I wrote those down the other way. It's 82. <laughs> <laughs> and I threw my book in his head. <laughs> I still remember this and I will forever. Because <laughs> it, was, it was so much prep and so much of like your life you poured into it. And then it was mm -hmm. that moment of like, I have failed everything and you can't pass grade 12 without passing these exams. Yeah. So ours was like, I'm sure we wrote sim very similar versions mm -hmm. of the exam. Um, we had the same sort of thing. Our teacher was preparing us that all of our grades were going to go down on this mm -hmm. test. Like it was just this thing that was sort of known that however well you were doing in the class, everybody just scored so much lower. So for mm -hmm. some reason, I had the highest mark in my pre-cal class in grade 12 for a very long time. I do not understand why, uh -huh. but I just did. But like, so I was getting 95 to 100% on everything, absolutely everything. And I got like in the 70s, I think, on this exam, oh, like the oh, other wow. highest scoring people. I don't think anybody got over an 80 on that yeah. exam. Like, I'm maybe I'm misremembering, but it was just a well-known thing that, like, if you were an 80s student, expect to get a, a 60 on this. If you were a 50s student, oh, there's no hope. No, you know, it was a very weird shift, but mm -hmm. also just an accepted, you're just going to do worse. Don't worry about it. It's the standardized. Like, it was the idea, like, oh, it's a standardized exam. It mm -hmm. just is what it is. It'll be fine. Yeah, we were definitely prepared for, like, this is going to be hard and it's going to suck. Uh, but I was also in applied math, which is the level below pre-cal mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the other Canadians out there. <laughs> so I was in the I am not going to become a doctor math class. <laughs> <laughs> so was that it was that still above what they call consumer, consumer math? Yeah, it was consumer math back then. It's no longer called that. Oh, OK. Uh, I don't remember is it called it is the kind of math you need to be an effective adult? Because that's what it should be called. Yeah. Well, there was some of that in applied math. Like we had to learn about mortgages and like deductions from your paycheck and how to calculate compound interest and stuff mm -hmm. i don't remember any mm -hmm. of that stuff <laughs> we got like a couple of weeks of that or something and then just a lot of like sine and cosine yeah i don't remember learning anything about progressive taxation rates i think technically we learned about compound interest for like one one class one class or something like that but uh it's now called essential mathematics it's, that's a mm -hmm. better term for it they didn't have good terms in ontario in the 90s this is what all basic, the good little consumers need <laughs> basic math general math advanced math basic english general english advanced what's, english oh what's the difference between basic and general 
general was what you call the applied math and basic was consumer. Well, yeah, like I I gather that, but those terms don't seem sufficiently different to, (laughs) yeah, to, to distinguish there. What I'm most curious about is uh, I never wrote the standardized test for English. I mm-hmm. assume the mathematics one was all bubble sheets. No, 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 no. no, no. Really? no. Uh, okay. It was a lot of like, here's a whole page to answer this question. Show all of your work. Hmm. Yeah. Bubble sheets really didn't come false? in until university in my life. Really? I did some bubble sheets in math. I never saw a bubble sheet no, until it university. Was, I was yeah. shocked when I was like... Like, we might have had some multiple choice, but in terms of an actual bubble sheet... Like, mm-hmm. no, that was a university thing yeah, for me. for sure. We also, we both did French immersion too, yeah. though, right? So maybe the curriculum and stuff, I mean, and you did IB at a huge school and that's a little bit different too, it so. Not that huge, 1,500 mm-hmm. kids or whatever. Yeah, my yeah. high school had 400. But even the, the English kids in my school didn't have bubble sheets for anything. Hmm. So uh, I went and looked up this test and you can actually find all of the past versions of the test online. Oh, cool. I, well, not all of them, but up until a certain pound. So I looked at the 2016 version, I think, and it like I could not answer half of these questions, <laughs> even if I had the four hours to do it. No way. <laughs> uh, so I've lost a lot of that. But you also there's a in the instruction sheet is very different now. It's like you can use online apps for mortgage calculators and yada yada, like all of these all these tools that we sure didn't have access yeah. to. <laughs> I remember having my graphing calculator inspected mm-hmm. to make sure I didn't have any uh, any notes hidden in yeah. any of the programs. So uh, the English exam, much better than the math exam for certain students. <laughs> uh, there were two parts to it. The one I did. The first part was like, read this text and answer these questions and analyze it and show that you can you know, analyze a text and talk about the characters and the motivations and yada, yada, yada. And then the second part was just an essay. You had... Yeah! <laughs> you remember That's this now? right! Because you had this to prep what you were going actually. to write for those mm-hmm. things ahead of time. Like, you kind of knew... You could you could come up with a few. Is this the one? Uh, I don't think you got them in advance. There was something about that. Maybe it was a different exam, but there's something about I I remember we got a little bit of information. We had to go home and prep it, but then like you didn't know exactly how you're going mm. to pr- do it. So or in something. my experience, we got to do a bunch of practice ones, but then the day of the exam, you just got like three topics and you picked one and you wrote until you felt like you were done. Yeah, maybe something like that. But that all that whole thing sounds familiar now. Yeah. yeah. So. I actually did the grade 12 English exam twice. What? Uh, because uh, I was a huge nerd and I had gotten permission from my art teacher to basically stop going to art class for a while so that I could do a debate class with my best friend's English class. <laughs> uh, and then I didn't want to go back to art class. So uh, I just did their grade 12 provincial exam as well as my own. <laughs> so that was fun. Did you just audit that test or did you get an actual two sets of grades. I don't remember. I feel like they probably couldn't because they had to send them in somewhere to get right. graded, I think. So mm. I think they probably weren't allowed to send in two for the <laughs> same students. Yeah. And I'm also not 100%. I don't think that our scores were graded differently because we were French immersion, but, you know, it was definitely sent in separately. So yeah. <laughs> so I did that one twice. It was That's good times. so funny. <laughs> <laughs> this is how big a nerd I was in high school. That's a pretty big nerd. <laughs> 
So those are the big Manitoba ones. There are also grade three provincial exams and grade oh, that's six not provincial fair. exams. I gather that they are somewhat less intense and they aren't <laughs> no calculus. Well, no, but like they're they're meant more to catch kids who need more support early on. Oh, okay. Uh, rather than to like make them part of their final grade. Do they though? <laughs> not a lot of research available on that that I could find. A 1999 booklet written by a bunch of teachers about how we should basically abolish standardized testing does not seem to have gone anywhere. (laughs) There are a lot of other provinces in Canada, and every province has their own system. So one of the pros for standardized testing, I think, is to get a lot of data about how students are doing in different places and be able to look at it and be like, you know, these people are doing a little better in English or whatever. Why might that be? And having all of these different systems seems to kind of fail that criteria of good things. Yeah, yeah, it's standardized among schools, but not between provinces. Right, yeah. Uh, So Alberta, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut do standardized testing in grades 6 and 9. And then they do uh, the Alberta Diploma Examinations in grade 12, pretty similar to Manitoba. And the territories tend to take the curricula of whatever provinces nearest them. Closest by. Yeah. The most horrifying one I found is in Quebec. They're called ministerial examinations taken in grade 10 and 11. Uh, The exam mark is worth 50% of your final grade. Mm -hmm. However, the final grade cannot be lower than the ministerial exam mark. So if you get 70% in the course, but you get 80% on the exam, your minimum mark has to be 80%, which I think is wild. Oh, so the exam can only like bump up your mark, basically? Hmm. Interesting. But imagine just doing nothing the whole year and then (laughs) rocking that exam. (laughs) (laughs) 95% in the course. I did nothing all year except this one exam. Saskatchewan has a system where you only have to take a standardized test if you're homeschooled, basically, which is true also in uh, New Brunswick. You only have to take the standardized test if you're homeschooled. So how are they getting the baselines for these things? No idea. (laughs) Yeah. I guess you just have to prove that you have been taught something. Here's my thought on this. It's because the schools are required to cover certain things in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And whereas there is a homeschool curriculum, you don't know what's being covered and to what extent in that. And so the assumption is that schools will have covered these things and people should have had this information. So if your homeschooling was adequate in meeting curriculum, you will be able to pass this exam. Yeah, like I I see that. It's just how do they know how adequate it is compared to the people who are not getting homeschooled. Well, we're going to talk about that kind of stuff in some of these other (laughs) things. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like most of the provinces do a combination of grade three, grade six, and then something in high school, either grade 10 or grade 12. And the subjects covered are pretty much exclusively reading, writing, and math. There's no standardized testing across Canada that is for any other subject. Excuse me, I believe that's pronounced rhythmic. <laughs> no, it is not. I refuse. <laughs> uh, so Ontario has a whole crown corporation that controls its standardized testing. Oh boy. Called the Education Quality and Accountability Office, which sounds very like post-apocalyptic. <laughs> so it's a separate entity from like the education minister's office or whatever. Yeah. Interesting. They do grade three reading, writing, and math, grade six reading, writing, and math, and grade nine math. And then in grade 10, you have to take a literacy test in order to graduate. All after my time. (laughs) I didn't learn a thing in school. (laughs) 
<laughs> Prince Edward Island has one of the longest lists of various provincial exams. So longest list, smallest island. <laughs> <laughs> they have to do all kinds of different literacy assessments, math assessments. Uh, there's even a French immersion math assessment, like a specific... Let's see if the French immersion kids still know how to do math. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. I know that that was one of the things that it was covered in like our information sessions when my parents were putting me into immersion was like sometimes French immersion kids are a little slower to pick up on math because they have to learn the language and then also learn how to do math in that language. Mm -hmm. But I mean, by like grade six, it all evens out. So yeah. Do you think that might be a factor in a little bit of your innumeracy? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I couldn't read a clock in English or French, so I don't think it was a big factor. (laughs) So yeah, that's a a quick overview of provincial exams across Canada and how they are all kind of ridiculous. The latest thing I could find other than like newspaper opinion reports were was this booklet from 1999 from a teacher's association that was basically like, uh, we really wish that we could spend more time teaching the curriculum instead of teaching them how to take these tests, which I think is a wide ranging problem. Maybe you don't have this information, but like I've heard that before. And uh, I, you know, it's been a long time since I was in high school. What is the disconnect between the curriculum and the test? Because ideally, I mean, the people who design the test are also the ones who design the curriculum. Mm -hmm. They should be. And so teaching the curriculum should teach the the test, shouldn't it? (laughs) Well, I think a big problem is that what we're trying to design curriculum to do these days is to teach people how to solve problems Mm -hmm. in every aspect of their life and how to take in information and use that information creatively to come to, you know, a reasonable conclusion. And most of these exams, which are multiple choice, especially in things like uh, English and and reading or whatever, are very much like, did you take in that knowledge and memorize it? Not, did you work out the answer to this problem? Do you remember the steps of the the recipe? Right. Yeah, because it's easier. It's easier to judge thousands upon thousands of questions like that. Because Mm -hmm. when you're teaching concepts and when you're judging problem solving – there could be a hundred realistic ways to get to that solution there. It depends on if you're judging, you know, what are you trying to learn? They're focusing more on what are the steps that you took, and but the tests want to see what is the outcome that you got to get there. And and those are harder things. I, I see it like the difference between when you're looking at sports, for example, we were talking about sports earlier. So For your standard team sports, you know, they got the goal or they didn't. They made the touchdown or they didn't. You know, you can do some instant replays and check on it, but they did or they didn't and they got points. But then you go and try to judge ice dancing or something like that. And let's take all the corruption of the judges aside. Mm. Um, it's a lot <laughs> well, more difficult to say, you know, what is more beautiful? You know, who executed? Look, okay, they both did triple axles, but whose was more beautiful or graceful? There's a lot more subjectivity in that. Who mm-hmm. gave you that feeling of the music better, <laughs> right? That's That's a really hard thing to judge. And so if you're moving to what seems like a really reasonable type of education, that's the concepts, that's the how you do it, the understanding of it. There's a lot more interpretation needed in that and and flexibility than just, did you do this thing? Can you memorize this knowledge? Yeah. Uh, so this is from the Cree School Board Commission, and they're talking about the advantages and disadvantages of standardized tests. It says, Standardized tests are ultimately not a very good measure of individual student performance and intelligence because the system is extremely simplistic. 
A standardized test can measure whether or not a student knows when the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement was written, for example, but it cannot determine whether or not the student has absorbed and thought about the larger issues surrounding the historical document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's so perfectly encapsulates the problem. Like we want to teach children yes. to think critically about the things that they're taking in, not just memorize dates. Yeah, so uh, we're going to talk now about some of the most famous standardized tests in the world, the ACT and the SAT. For our American listeners, chances are that when you think of a standardized test, you think of the SAT. As Ashlyn said, unless you're attending an American university, end of high school standardized tests are not so standard a thing here in Canada. Well, I guess the SAT and the ACT aren't so much as end of high school as entry to university, but years of television have blurred the difference for me. (laughs) (laughs) I never did any university level preparation because I knew that my life lay on a different path after high school. Studying for this segment was the first time that I had heard of the ACT. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I saw the acronym, but I, I still don't know what it is. I'm curious to know. I'll let you know. <laughs> and I was familiar with the concept of the SAT. And not surprisingly, most of the criticisms, the test scores for both are still making my head hurt. I was reading so many tables. Uh-huh. I spent like two hours on Wikipedia going, what does this table mean? <laughs> the SAT, formerly either the Scholastic Aptitude Test or the Scholastics Assessment Test, is a three-hour test, or three hours and 50 minutes if you add on the essay portion. Scores on the SAT range from 400 to 1600, combining test results from two 800-point sections. There's mathematics and critical reading and writing. So there's some similarity between the provincial tests there. <laughs> mm-hmm. We don't care about anything else. Yep. The ACT, which is an abbreviation of American College Testing, is a direct competitor of the SAT. Um, I see. The ACT test covers four academic skill areas. English, mathematics, reading, and science reasoning. Mm. It also offers an optional direct writing test. The main four ACT test sections are individually scored on a scale of 1 to 36, and a composite score, the rounded whole number average of the four sections, is provided. Your score out of 4 times 36. (laughs) The wiki page for the ACT helpfully tells us that the test has seen a gradual increase of test takers each year, and, as of 2012, surpassed the SAT in total test takers. The ACT is more popular in the Midwest and Southern U.S., and the SAT is more popular on the coasts, for reasons that will make sense very shortly. Since the thought of a program that is standardized across the entire country seems anathema to the values of the United States, (laughs) how in the heck did everyone Mm -hmm. agree to one, okay, two, overarching tests. The way you expect to get any rich elitist to agree to anything in 1900. Money? Charge the money. Exclusion oh, right. and racism. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> oh, eugenics. Mm-hmm. Up through the end of the 19th century, American universities each had their own entrance examinations, for which students normally had to travel through the university itself to sit. In December 1899, the College Entrance Examination Board, which is now called the College Board, was formed. It was as a non-profit to expand access to higher education. Well, expand access to the scions of wealthy families from outside the Upper Eastern Seaboard of the United States. <laughs> so, random interjection. Yeah. I read a book in one of my English classes way back when about some guy who invented a pump and his kid, I don't know, you some of you probably recognize this book. I don't remember what the name of it is. <laughs> but they talk in the beginning, and this was like around 1600, I want to say, how he went to write the entrance exam for a famous college. Maybe it was Oxford. And the entrance exam was just him sitting in a room for like three days and literally writing down everything he knew. 
Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, and that I sounds believe like that the most was, horrifying thing. I believe that was uh, the way Oxford used to do it. Oh, my God. And that just ago. sounds like the most extreme standardized test ever. Tell us everything. Yeah. <laughs> In three days. No, I, like, I don't know if that's true or if that's apocryphal, but I've, yeah, all, I've also heard that that... Uh, that that's what Oxford used to do. It stuck with me for this long, just as to what a terrible experience that must have been. It's, it sounds delightful to me, honestly. Oh, like, God. like you know, it would take forever and you'd miss a bunch of stuff, but, it, you know, it sounds In fun. three days, you would only have the hot time to do, like, the highlights of your yeah, yeah. of your highlights. And that's why we will never see a third in the name of the wind book. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, coastal yeah. elites. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all the way back still in December 1899. And at the same time, the college board started connecting the Ivy League. So we're talking the turn of the 20th century here. Eugenicists, such as Lewis Terman, began promoting Bennett's IQ test in American schools. Mm-hmm. By the mid-1920s, these IQ tests, including the Army Alpha test used on recruits in the Great War, led to the college board developing the Scholastic Aptitude Test. They still own all of the rights to it today. Hmm. Every time somebody says the Great War, I just I hear Yoda in my head. War not make one great. <laughs> <laughs> If I sound bitter, it's because I am. <laughs> not, because not about I, this specific no. way. Just <laughs> well, about this specific <laughs> It's not because I'm jealous of those with a post-secondary degree, nor do I have any dislike of the pursuit of knowledge for its own benefit. I really don't. I like to learn. I'm bitter because of the gates and the hurdles set up to keep people from getting an education. Mm-hmm. We talked about the eugenics nightmare that is the IQ test in episode 110, which is science and race. And while we had to sit with some of the problematic stuff of our own in that episode, the fact is that eugenics movement was and continues to be horrible, racist, and classist. And I really appear to have channeled Jem for that last paragraph. Mm-hmm. Okay, College Board still owns all the rights. And while they are a not-for-profit company, the SAT is not free to take. Going from the College Board's home webpage, I had to click three deeper levels of the site to find the basic fee structure. Taking the test itself will cost you $49.50 or $64.50 if your test is to include the essay portion. These are all in USD, by the way. Mm-hmm. That fee doesn't include any specific subject tests, of which there are 20, and your college application, like the program that you're entering, may ask you to take one or more of those, depending. And those are $26 to register, and either 22 or 26 per test. Hmm. There are additional mandatory fees if you are not located in the United States. In Canada, you need to add on another $43 as a region fee. There are fees for phone registration, specific fees for test centers in certain cities, fees to change the type of test you are doing, fees for being on a wait list, fees to get your scores by phone, fees to have your scores verified by hand. These fees all range between $15 and $55 on top of your base charge. Yikes. And then there's the pre-testing. Besides the college board, several for-profit companies have formed to prepare test takers for their most scary day ever with a number two pencil. Sounds familiar. There are pre-test... <laughs> yep. None of them are written like 90s shock jocks, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully not. I haven't read any. <laughs> but these are for children. There are pre-testing courses, and pre-testing tutoring, and pre-testing books, and pre-tests, and pre-pre-tests. And they all cost money. And most of these companies will tell you at length why their program is the only one that will give you any headway into the quagmire that is the SAT. Uh-huh. This pre-testing tutoring is a $2 billion a year. Mm, uh, doesn't surprise me. No. So speaking of the quagmire... How scary is the SAT? Up until 2016, if you weren't from the upper crust, it could have been pretty scary, even without the price tag. Thanks to its eugenics beginning, the verbal SAT has a continued cultural bias. A famous, but long-dead example of this bias in the SAT was the Orsman Regatta analogy question. I only know what a regatta is because I know your dad. (laughs) 
the object of the question was they used to have these analogy questions where you had to say x is to y as z is to a mm-hmm. right. that kind of thing the object of the question was to find the pair of terms that had the relationship most similar to the relationship between runner and marathon correct answer was oarsman and regatta these analogy questions were scrapped entirely in 2005 <laughs> <laughs> i remember looking at some of them because because of pop culture yeah all fascinating knew about the sat a little bit mm-hmm. and those analogy questions were always baffling to me and i mean really? i'm a native english speaker and they still made no sense i always liked those really <laughs> yeah they made no sense to me there uh, have been a couple on some of my prep tests yeah so they did an overhaul of the sat in 2016 and the new version was released it's supposed to be more in line with what is actually being taught in american high schools and not so it's based on the the common core standard that they've brought in and there's less cultural or income-based, but we still see a huge discrepancy in scores. Sorry, l- less less cultural and income-based bias? Yeah, no. bias. Okay, sorry. I was listening to a radio lab about intelligence testing recently. They just recently did a series on it. And one of the questions I remember them saying that was a problem was, what color is a ruby? And I mean, that's just acquired knowledge. There's no like intelligence basis yeah. for you to know yeah. that but there was a huge difference not only because of that but because like maybe white kids n- had seen more rubies in their time than 1960s black kids but also ruby was a fairly common name for black children then mm-hmm. yeah and so black kids would go well ruby is black <laughs> <laughs> so there's just so many things like that that are almost impossible to take into account when you're trying to come up with these questions i mean yes but you can also detect those kinds of biases and work to detect them when you're designing your test oh, and not just release it to people and yeah. assume. Yeah. And I mean, well, it's gone through so many revisions yeah. of these mm. things, but there's still, I'm sure, things that haven't been worked out because it's right. so hard. Well, with these, I mean, the, the bias was baked in as part of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. It was intentionally yeah, it was in there. Yeah, yeah. 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 We're, we're, yeah. We're, we're assuming no malice. However, <laughs> this whole thing was written specifically for malice. Silly hus. <laughs> But before we uh, continue with more of the cultural issues that we're going to dunk on around college entry standardized testing, let's introduce the ACT. The ACT was developed in 1959 as direct competition to the SAT. And its parent company, which is also a nonprofit, it's ACT Inc., states that its scores provide an indicator of college readiness and correspond to entry-level college courses. Some 13 states in the U.S. require that all high school students, college-bound or not, take the ACT prior to graduation. Oh. Mm. Yeah. That has to help with the surpassing the SAT and test taker numbers. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. There are 13 where it's required and six where it's optional. And I'm sure that there was no ACT lobbyists who were involved in the uh, this legislation. Oh, of course not. No, <laughs> never. I went looking for the ACT fees, the same as I did for the SAT ones. And on its website, the registration for the 2019 ACT tests are now closed. And so is any access to their fee structure, Mm. especially since I was not creating a login to give them my information. (laughs) Wikipedia, though, (laughs) helpfully advertises that the test for 2018-2019 cost $50.50 without the writing portion and $67 with the writing portion. Ordering the prep packs costs additional $59.95 per pack plus shipping. Additional fees may apply for similar items to the SAT. The ACT bills itself as more of a measure of pure college readiness than the SAT. However, rich, white, cis male students are still the standard for the test. According to the National Center for Public Policy and Higher Education, 60%, remember that number, 60% 
of first-year college students require some remedial classes in either English or mathematics, even after taking either of standardized aptitude tests. 60% have taken of the ones who have taken this test and passed still require remedial work in either English or math. That's actually a question that I had. Are these tests like pass-fail, or, or are they simply used as part of the selection criteria along with your grades um, when determining college entry? It depends on the college. Right. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was all the latter. It was just like... Yeah, like the idea that you, could, that you could actually pass or fail uh, these kinds of tests mm-hmm. is kind of foreign to me just mm-hmm. because of the, the waters in which I'm currently swimming. <laughs> Instead of measuring scholastic readiness, both the SAT and the ACT measure the financial stability and race, class, and gender of the test taker. Students from households which earn less than $20,000 per year on average scored around 400 points lower on the 2014 SAT than students from households which made 200000 or more per year. Remind us what the range is. 400 points is how much of the test? Quarter, because it's you get 1,600. Right, okay. It's 800 math, 800 English, and then your score is out of 1,600. Yikes. I mean, that's oh, that's got to be many standard deviations, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> there is um, a standard deviation between black students and white students who take the exam as well. <laughs> the National Center for Fair and Open Testing says the tests are highly coachable, advantaging students who can afford to spend 800 or more on test preparation classes. Yeah, highly coachable is not a pro to your test. Yeah, and that's like no. with, with you saying you spent half the semester learning, exactly. learning how to take the test as yeah. opposed to actually learning how to do math. And that's so unfortunate. Yeah. And it it just begs the question more so what exactly is your test measuring Mm -hmm. here? Because right now it sounds like it's just a circle. Yeah. Really. You're studying for the test so you can get the marks. So then, you know, but then you need the marks. So you get to study for the test. Yeah. And and you get all the. But where does any of it come from? Or what good is any of it? As you say, if more than half of the students still aren't at college level. Yeah. And is it really the material that you need for college? Anyway, mm-hmm. and if it's so coachable and so hard to to pass based on your your high school education, then it's obviously not testing what's in the curriculum. Yeah. Again, this is this is um, very familiar territory. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking as somebody who's paying a lot of money right now for an MCAT prep course, having taken a lot of the prerequisite courses myself, but also uh, finding the coaching on test taking strategies rather than just science content to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. And these advantages, these $800 or more on test prep classes, those also come on top of uh, sociological advantages, like these kids would have better schools, more dedicated teachers, mm-hmm. parental class time, sizes. yeah, all that sort of stuff. So we can't figure in that amount of like how much more that kind of a, a dollar amount would be. Of course. Besides money and culture, race and gender also play parts in who scores well on these tests. A reason for this could be a psychological phenomenon called stereotype threat. Stereotype threat happens when an individual who identifies themselves within a subgroup of people is taking a test and comes across a stereotype, usually of American origin, regarding that subgroup. This, coupled with, you know, regular test anxiety, the, oh crap, I'm going to do really bad on this test, I just prepare for my marks to go down, as Laura was talking about earlier, and this will usually cause a low test performance for that individual or group affected. So if you see a question on the test saying there are more boys in this math class than there are girls, and you're a feminine presenting person in a math class, that might contribute to the bias against you in the test. This happens because the individual is under increased pressure to overcome the stereotype threat and prove it wrong. 
This form of stereotype can be translated into a form of gender or race bias. It's found in numerous standardized tests spanning throughout the years they have existed. So being under increased pressure to prove the stereotype wrong will drive your scores down because you're like panicking more yeah a little bit the idea okay yeah there's a fair amount of psychological research on stereotype threat um Mm -hmm. and like a lot of psychological research there's criticisms strengths and weaknesses but generally uh, speaking the idea is that if you are reminded of a negative stereotype about yourself you are more likely to exhibit that stereotype under under pressure uh, shortly thereafter so is it one of the ones we're gonna have to revisit in our uh psychological failure to replicate uh, (laughs) it may be like there there have been negative replications of stereotype studies uh, as well um so you know like a lot of psychology it is under dispute (laughs) well and you have to look at the whole body of the evidence yes yeah Mm -hmm. surveys are fun (laughs) okay and additionally one set of studies has reported differential item functioning Namely, some test questions function differently based on the racial group of the test taker, reflecting some sort of systematic difference in a group's ability to understand certain test questions or acquire the knowledge required to answer them. In 2003, R.O. Friedel published data in the Harvard Educational Review showing that black students have a slight advantage on the verbal questions that are labeled as difficult in the SAT, whereas white and Asian students tend to have a slight advantage on the questions labeled as easy. Friedel argued that these findings suggested that the easy test items use vocabulary that is easier to understand for white middle-class students than for minorities, who often use a different language in the home environment and have to code switch, whereas the difficult items use complex language that was learned only through lectures and textbooks, giving both student groups equal opportunities to acquire it. Hmm. I found that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you have to code switch in the test, it's going to or mess think you up English more. instead of Spanish. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to mess you up more. That is interesting. I couldn't find that study not behind a paywall, but I really want to read it. Hmm. <laughs> There's also some interesting uh, psychological research with regard to performance under stress uh, mm-hmm. in test environments, where, and this isn't This is uh, also studied in sports, where somebody who generally performs at a high level tends to perform better under moderate stress, uh, like an athlete performing in front of a crowd. Yeah. Uh, whereas somebody who does not perform as well performs worse under stress. So you, what you'll see then is a widening gap mm-hmm. in yeah. test scores. And I can see that play out every time that I have to type in a meeting room with other people in it. Mm-hmm. I forget what the keyboard is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's pretty flip, but it's I, I can see that happen in my day-to-day life. If I have to do editing on the fly with other people talking to me, I can't do it. Oh, and I've got one more kick in the teeth about the SAT and the ACT. A lawsuit filed in 2013 charged that both companies sell students personal identifiable information for a profit of at least 33 cents per test taker. Uh, Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. What can universities do? What can universities do to take care of their well-known standardized testing problems? Ooh, ooh, I know. We go back to the format where you have to write down everything you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, that would be terrible. <laughs> you grade it. <laughs> so we have that 60% remedial requirement rate for people entering universities in the States. I saw that that number a couple of places, and it still just blows my mind. 60% of people need some sort of help. And that's just the number that they've identified. There might be some other kids out there struggling. And so it's obvious that these tests aren't doing what they're supposed to do. They're not preparing you for college level work or university level work. Or if they're, uh, they're not, you know, like as entry tests, you'd think that their purpose would be to screen out people who, who are not prepared. 
Like right. I don't I don't know right. if the test can prepare mm-hmm. you, but uh, but yeah, but they're, not they're doing obviously that. not doing that. Yeah, they're yeah. they're obviously yeah their outcomes are not matching what the universities are deeming required. They're screening out people who can't afford to do all the hoops to jump through all the hoops to get to the test. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that those aren't the smart kids. Yeah, they may just not have been able to afford the eight hundred dollars for a tutor in the nineteen sixties. Uh, Ashlyn had mentioned it in her segment with uh, that pamphlet that she saw. But there was a movement in the United States to drop using SAT scores as a requirement for university entrance. And so they were dropped from some universities. But the SAT and ACT scores were reintroduced when educators argued that the academic standards of the universities had dropped. Insert eye roll here. <laughs> That's not coded language at all. No. Some universities are banning the submission of standardized test scores, even today. Hampshire College claims that they did so because, quote, Some good students are bad test takers, particularly under stress, such as when a test may grant or deny college entry. Multiple choice tests don't reveal much about a student. As a result of this charge, they claim, Class diversity increased to 31% students of color and the most diverse in our history, up from 21% two years ago. This Hampshire college is using grade point averages as a marker of college readiness instead. Removing standardized testing allows a more holistic approach to judging a student's aptitude without making them write something for three days straight. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly don't know what the answer is in the big picture, though. Do we lower the barriers for university, drop the costs, and admit that some form of post-secondary education is now a requirement, be it academic or technical. Make all universities public and free. Yeah, that one sounds good. <laughs> I think you'd see some of this bias disappear if the public education system, you know, for, for junior high and high school were improved in the United States too. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of issues with the way widely discussed and widely known with the way that uh, those systems are funded uh, in a way that's fundamentally racist. Or just at all. Even, yeah, the, the racist part of it is a really terrible part, but the whole system is underfunded. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Ashwin was saying in her segment, we don't have a similar program here in Canada. We can't see where our own education systems are making these same gaps, but you can be damn sure that they are in schools that are on or near reserves or on or near northern communities because Canada's racism problem is just as bad as the United States. We just don't talk about it. Yeah. So something I would like to know is what is the commonality of standardized tests for requirement for entry to post-secondary education across the world or similar types of countries at similar like economic development levels and social development levels and things like that? The idea that you couldn't just stop doing SATs mm-hmm. it seems it seems so simple to me. I, I get it. Like I grew up here in Canada and, you know, I had to fill out some forms and pay some yeah. money and I applied for university, you know, and then, you know, they looked at my GPA and, and things like that. So just the idea that I, to write a whole big test in addition to that is very foreign to me. But what, you know, are we are we an anomaly? I don't know. But even if we are, when you actually look at the outcomes of that in people's abilities to do university and to get that quality education that's considered that like high level, is it really different if you didn't do an SAT? Or ACT? A lot of bigger universities around the world still do have their own entrance exams. And like an individual entrance exam, Mm -hmm. that's fine. But um, I mean, it's not fine, but it's something that then question of, well, this exam, the standard exam, is it truly measuring what we want to measure? You have a better chance that they have done that work to make sure that it is, in fact, measuring what we want to measure. ACT Inc. has international studies as well, like international tests as well that they do. There are some other companies worldwide that do this, but I don't have the actual numbers for you. Hmm. And 
I did read up a little bit on it, but not enough that I could make a pronouncement about it. No, that's fine. These are just questions that I have about no, it. because they're it, good it, questions. It, it does seem just like a somewhat simple solution, Yeah, <laughs> at least for the, for the vast majority. I mean, especially in the US, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are so many state colleges and mm-hmm. smaller universities throughout the country that the fact that they all require this massive thing seems a little absurd. Well, for technical colleges or community colleges in the States, I read an interview with uh, one person who got around doing the SAT because they knew they were a bad test taker by going to a two-year community college or something first and then going using those grades to transfer to right. university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but it's and that's a relatively common, but a lot of like the elite colleges won't accept transfers like Yeah. And you can only transfer in certain programs and you'd have to leave some of your course numbers behind and you would mm-hmm. be a year behind your cohort or whatever. I don't know what the answer is. Listeners, do you have an answer? F the elite colleges. Yeah. <laughs> You'll do fine like I mean, another problem too is if we don't have a big standardized thing like that is the problem with places like private schools bumping up everybody's grades and and stuff to make it seem like they're doing a better job of educating the young folks than that's a good point that hadn't occurred to me yeah i have one last pro tip if you're past your late 20s and you're still enthusiastically offering to tell people your sat score you peaked at 17 and you need to re-examine your life choices (laughs) oh yeah uh if anybody is ever bragging to you about like an iq score or or any sort of standardized test score you drop that person like a bag of rocks (laughs) i ask them how they feel about eugenics So as we have uh, alluded to and downright said many times, Jem is currently preparing for the MCAT, an enormous standardized test that lets you get into med school and cut people open. How's that going for you, Jem? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so I'm I'm writing the MCAT at the end of August, um, and so I'm currently studying. <laughs> Let's get down to brass tacks, I guess. What is the MCAT? Does anyone know what the MCAT stands for? Medical kittens. <laughs> <laughs> Went off the rails a little sooner than I expected. <laughs> it's been a long day. Ashley? I, I can't imagine what the C stands for, actually. Remember, this is an American test. Americans don't attend Competency? university. Medical no. college aptitude test or it's the assessment medical, test? Medical college admission test. Mm. Uh, it's administered by the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, uh, sometimes incorrectly uh, referred to as the American Association of Medical Colleges. Uh, who cares? <laughs> the MCAT is required for admission to medical schools uh, throughout the United States. And uh, most medical schools in Canada also require the MCAT, although an increasing number of them are waiting at less uh, for admission purposes or only looking at your score on one of the four sections. The MCAT is a big test. It it actually got bigger in 2015. So most of uh, most of the segment is it might be new to even some people who have taken the MCAT because in 2015 the scoring uh, changed fundamentally and the test got longer. So uh, currently the test has a total time of writing including a couple short breaks of seven and a half hours. Ooh, that's repulsive. Yeah. One so day? One day. 
So you, you arrive, you get, uh, you know, you get checked in, you have to wait, uh, you sit down, you have to, do, you get to do like a 10 minute sort of introduction to the computer system. It's all computerized now, uh, no bubble sheets, which is, uh, nice. And then, uh, you start your test and there are four sections. Each of them is about an hour and a half. Uh, you get two 10 minute breaks and then in between, uh, so you get a 10 minute break in between the first and second section. Then you get a half hour break in between the second and third section. And then you get another 10 minute break in between the last two sections. You get a decent chair. Oh, I can't imagine. That would really, oh, that would suck so hard. And I'm sure they don't <laughs> allow you to bring your own. So um, I'll go over kind of the basics of the test. The old test used to have three sections, uh, all about uh, an hour and a half long, uh, that cover physics, chemistry, and biology. Uh, in 2015, they changed the scoring, as I mentioned, and they added uh, a fourth section on psychology and sociology. And they also removed the writing sample. So it is now entirely multiple choice, mm. four multiple choice an uh, answers for each question. You don't also get any penalty for guessing. Uh, I'm, I've only <laughs> come to think of it. Those Goss math tests were the only tests I've ever written where you got a penalty for, for guessing wrong. Okay. I think um, that is that same test. Yeah, that yeah. I took. yeah. Um, but the MCAT does not penalize you, uh, for that. What do you mean it doesn't penalize you? So like there you are don't get negative. Points yes. For it? So okay. there are some tests like this Gauss test that we talked about earlier, the optional math test uh, in that uh, we took in high school, where uh, a a correct answer is worth a point, a uh, an empty answer is worth zero, mm -hmm. but an incorrect answer is worth a negative point. Okay. And so the the MCAT does not work that way. Because <laughs> heaven forbid people try. Like, oh my god. It takes out the opportunity for you to just fluke it. But you can do that with statistics. Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you know what the, you know, is, it, if you properly randomize the questions, there's a 25% chance that they get it right. So you just use stats to figure out what the actual score is. That's fine. <laughs> I I couldn't leave blank spaces on the Goss now that I'm remembering. I'm pretty sure that's why I tanked it. <laughs> like, no, I can't leave this blank. Oh, yeah. And the, the half hour break that you get for lunch, uh, you, you know, you, you got to bring a sandwich or something like you, they don't give you a mic or sure. you can't you can't leave the building yeah so do they have a cry room <laughs> uh you can go to the bathroom but uh, they're not going to stop the timer <laughs> sure that's fair all of the sections have more or less the same basic format the four sections are and and these are the the order in which you write them too uh the first is chemical and physical foundations of biological systems which tests uh, chemistry and physics and uh, a good amount of uh, biochemistry too the second section is critical analysis and reading skills, um, often abbreviated CARS, and that basically a uh, reading comprehension and reasoning test, mm -hmm. uh, which I'll get into a bit more in a minute. Uh, then you have biological and biochemical foundations of living systems, which is more bio and biochem. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have psychological, social, and biological foundations of behavior, which is the new psych-soch section. FYI, when you say psych-soch, which I hear a lot. I hate that phrase so <laughs> but, much. But you got to add section on there. Psych so section. <laughs> section? Section. Psych so section. The MCAT has an interesting design to the way they do questions as well. Each section has about 60 questions. So the science sections, the, the three science sections, each have 59 questions and you get 95 minutes 
to write them. So that's one and a half minutes per question, but that actually doesn't include the amount of time that you spend reading the passages, uh, which are often deliberately obfuscated. Um, of course. And it does not include the time you spend deciphering intentionally misleading tables and graphs. Cars, on the other hand, is uh, only 53 questions in 90 minutes, so you get slightly more than a minute and a half per question, but there are no standalones, and there are also no correct answers. So th the way each of these sections work is you will be presented with a passage, which is, you know, four to six hundred words. Um, they're a little bit longer in cars, a little bit shorter in the science sections to, to read over. Often uh, the science passages are adapted from a study and uh, they will they will take the study and they'll just remove paragraphs willy nilly. They'll <laughs> rearrange things. They'll remove explanatory paragraphs. They will redo the graphs to make them more ambiguous. Uh, mm -hmm. they'll just, they'll just make it an, a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, they'll make sure that additional information, uh, that is not useful is added to try to overwhelm you with details. And the lab then instructors would be ashamed. And then what they'll do is they'll present you with seven ish questions about the passage, uh, some of which will relate directly to the passage, some of which will relate to concepts discussed in the passage, some of which will say, here's this additional information. Uh, how do you interpret uh, the passage in light of this new information, or how would the authors interpret this new information? Why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then you get four multiple choice answers. The multiple choice answers will often include which of the following is false, or they will include three statements, and then you have to say, you know, one and three are correct, uh, or uh, one, two, and three are correct, or only two is correct. It's designed to be terrible. Mm -hmm. And then about 80% of the questions are passage-based, and then uh, about 20% of the questions are just standalone scientific knowledge. And the cars section, by contrast, will give you a passage, usually slightly longer, that can be about anything. My prep tests have included passages about the writing of the secret garden. They've included passages about why it should be legal, and in fact, why it is moral to allow people to sell their children. <laughs> um, they, they included passages uh, arguing for religious education in schools, passages arguing that uh, abortion is morally reprehensible, passages arguing that you should never, ever, ever cooperate with police. So you've done a lot of prep tests is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> They're just preparing yeah. you for yeah. dealing with patients day in, mm -hmm. day out. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into, we'll get into some of the, some of the strengths of this test in a little bit, but uh, you have this passage and then you have to answer questions. And it's not just reading comprehension questions. It's, uh, some of them will ask about details in the passage. Some of them will, um, oh, we had a fun intelligent design passage. Uh, that was good. Um, <laughs> but they'll basically, they're just saying, you know, can you race through this passage, read it, and then understand it in a fundamental way. Understand what the author is arguing for. They'll ask you questions about why the author included certain bits of information or why the author failed to include certain bits of information. They'll ask you questions. How would the author respond to this new information? And often the answer in that case is the author would dismiss it <laughs> in, in one way or another. So uh, a lot of... Uh, questions that are relating to did you understand the main idea of the passage and did you understand the author's perspective and are you able to reason about the author's perspective and are you able to reason beyond the author's perspective um, however you will often be penalized for bringing in outside information mm -hmm. so they will say um, the passage argues this 
But then it also brings up this point, why is that contradictory? And if you bring up, you know, in the abortion example, if you bring up bodily autonomy arguments, which will be one of the answers, you will get it wrong because that is not relevant to the specific point that the author was making. That's a, a different uh, right. valid point, but it doesn't quite answer the question. And that's one of the reasons they intentionally will bring up things that are very politically charged yeah. uh, because they want to bait you into bringing mm-hmm. your own perspective and your own outside knowledge into the test. That Just like you're doing by looking at me with every sentence <laughs> that you're saying, like, <laughs> Lauren is going to get angry at this. I need to bait them yeah, with Yeah, this it. sounds like something I would fail. <laughs> <laughs> what the MCAT test is interesting because uh, like I have, as I mentioned earlier, um, I've taken the biological requirements. I've taken the OCHEM. I haven't taken psychology or sociology, but I, I've taken a lot of the courses that are prerequisites f- for the MCAT, uh, not, not literal prerequisites, but the courses that teach this, yeah. uh, this content. However, what is taught uh, or, or what is covered on the MCAT, your base scientific knowledge is really only about 30% of what is tested uh, really? on the science sections. Another 30% is your ability to correctly interpret and understand these scientific papers. Uh, you'll often get two or three questions in the passage where if you just misunderstood like a dose-response relationship that was intentionally presented ambiguously, then you'll just, you can't get them right. <laughs> and uh, another 40% is sort of basic reasoning skills that are built upon that science knowledge. So they might ask you, I can't actually, although I have knowledge of some actual MCAT questions from past years, and I have knowledge of some questions right. from prep companies, I could be sued by actually presenting any real examples. Wow. They are One of the things that the, the MCAT does when you sign up for it is they will, if you describe the MCAT or describe any of the specific questions beyond just, I think I did well or poorly, and these are the sections that are on the MCAT. Uh, if you describe anything more specifically than that, they can strike your score and uh, they can sue you, but they probably won't. But they will refuse to release your score to any schools <laughs> and they will refuse to allow you to write it again. So uh, yeah, uh, they are zealous. <laughs> in their um, protection of their intellectual property. An example of something that might be tested is they will say, in this study, we found that tyrosine had the following effects. We found that when we we had these knockout mice uh, that were unable to synthesize this particular protein that uh, was uh, that had high levels of tyrosine in it, what other amino acid might be a precursor to tyrosine in this biological process? And so you need to know all 20 amino acids and their basic structures, and you need to know that, uh, oh, they mention phenylalanine and uh, they don't mention tryptophan. So the answer is probably phenylalanine because that's also an aromatic uh, amino acid. But uh, you wouldn't want to pick um, glutamate because that's uh, not aromatic. So you need to know the relationship between different things. Yeah, you need to know you need to know the relationship between different things. But then you also, in addition, yeah, in addition to know. knowing the relationship between different things, you need to then be able to use that as the basis for your reasoning. That is interesting. And that seems uh, as absurd as a lot of the things that you tell me about this study process and the types of things you need to know. The way that they're using that knowledge makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's not just know this regurgitate it's know this use it use that information to inform your decision making process to come to the right or the best possible conclusion and that's something that the other tests that we've talked about haven't 
done or it doesn't sound like they do that very much argument we were having against them yeah exactly so this one i mean it it still has some of those issues but i i I can appreciate that approach for things that it's like okay now that you know about this what else do you know about it apply that knowledge which is really what we all need to do there is party tricks associated with it though because you're not allowed to bring in a calculator so you need to you need to teach yourself how to do things like take a concentration of hydronium ions and calculate the pH of a solution in your head. So I can now do negative logs in my head to like two significant figures pretty accurately. Gross. <laughs> and then there's something that it's like, well, we have calculators for this reason. Right, so right. why do I have exactly. to do this? <laughs> so um, same reason I had to use a slide roll for the first part of trigonometry in high school. Right. As I mentioned, they take these passages and adapt them to make them harder to understand. But they will also um, add ambiguity in other ways. There are often cases where they will, among the answer choices, there are no answers that are really correct. And you will be expected to pick the answer that is as close to correct as possible. I hate it. It's, I know, um, those uh, are very annoying. This happens especially in cars, mm-hmm. but it also happens in the the, the science passages, like especially mm-hmm. in biology. They'll say, you know, you have a patient who's presenting this way, and they have recently been doing this, and we tested, and there's, uh, there's a high level of this hormone. What is the most likely state of this biological system? And they'll give you a bunch of answers, and you'll, and you'll be able to say, this is wrong, this is wrong, these two are possible. They won't give you, like, this hormone is higher, Mm -hmm. but they'll give you, like, this hormone and this other hormone is higher. And you can say, well, you know, that's part of this pathway, which is probably upregulated by this thing. Mm -hmm. So I'd get, you know, there's probably like a 70% chance they've got a high measurement here, but they also might end up being low in sodium, too. So that's also possible, but it's a little less likely. So I'm going to pick this other one. I mean, that is kind of what you got to do in medicine. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like, getting getting prospective doctors prepared for ambiguity in that way is really helpful. And it is something, you know, you're going to get answers wrong a lot Mm -hmm. in medicine, Mm -hmm. and you have to be able to make decisions that uh, without knowing the right answer, knowing that there might not be a right answer, and knowing that you will never know whether you got the answer right. You just have to tell all of your patients that they're too fat for medicine and send them away, right? Yeah. So, um, and there's also uh, a bunch of questions that you have no reason to know the answer to because they won't actually be scored. They'll throw in additional questions into the test and not score them. They will score them, but they won't uh, use them as part of your score because they're like, oh, we're not sure if we're going to use these in future tests. So we want to see how people do on them. And then there's also the way that scored, which I'll get into in a sec. So, well, let's do that now. So scores, uh, even though it's computerized and they could know your score instantly, uh, scores are released (laughs) about a month after you write. It's unlikely, I don't know for sure how many tests are active at any given time, but it's unlikely that other people around you in the test taking center are going to be writing the same test as you. Really? Okay. So they have hundreds of different... I don't know how many. Uh, There's definitely many. Yeah, it's a proprietary um, I, information. Yeah, I, I, I sure. doubt hundreds, but probably in the tens sure. at any given time. So I know there are some tests that as you answer questions, it will give you an, a question that is more it's difficult harder or, or easier, easier yeah. based on whether you got it right. No, uh, there are questions later in your medical career that work like that. I, th- mm-hmm. I believe the licensing exams uh, in, in some places are uh, are structured that way. The MCAT is not. Okay. It's just, you know, you sit down and you have a fixed test in front of you. Mm-hmm. However, some people will get easier tests and some people will get harder tests and the 
way that the test is scored takes that into account. Mm. If you have this question that few people get it right, that question will be worth less mm. to get right. But if you have a question that a lot of people get right, that question will be worth more in your grade. Okay. For current and old tests, you never see your raw score. You never get a percentage. You never know, I got this many right and this many wrong. You get a scaled score. And the way it used to work is you would get a score from 1 to 15 on each of the sections, which gives you a total score between 3 and 45. These are whole numbers, uh, no fractions, no rounding of any kind. The new test works kind of the same way, but they changed what all the numbers are. In the new test, for each section, you get a score between 118 and 132, with a median of 125. Now, when you add the four sections together, that gives you a total score between 472 and 528 with a median of 500. So but I would like to take the MCAT just so I can say I got 472 on the MCAT and like <laughs> nobody knows people is not going to know are not going to know what that yeah, means. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to sound really impressive. So so by definition 500 is the average uh, median score. So the uh, that means that the average person who writes an MCAT Right. will score 500. But the average person on the street, if you made them write an MCAT, they would probably score significantly lower. <laughs> yeah, 472. <laughs> Trying to interpret, because as we alluded to earlier, there's no pass-fail. Trying to interpret uh, a score is is hard. So the 50th percentile is 500. So, you know, you want to score better than 500 for sure. But what's a good score? What's a score that's going to get you into a med school? That varies significantly between schools. It also varies within the same school, By depending year. on where you are coming from. Mm, so, for yeah. example, if I apply to uh, school at University of Manitoba, I will need a much lower score than uh, if I lived in Ontario and sure. applied in the University of Manitoba. I'm actually not sure if U of M does that. I think mm -hmm. they do, but you have different applicant pools. Yeah, it's, you want to give priority to certain groups. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because a lot of your medical education is funded by the provincial government, and you're much uh, more likely to stay and practice in the province so they can recoup some of that yeah. uh, cost uh, if you already live there. In terms of a good score, a 510 is going to put you in a fairly good position, depending on your school, your GPA, whatever. So you want to score 125 being the average on each of these sections. You want to score like a 128, 129, you know, 127, 128, you, you know, might get you in on any so given close. section. It is very close. Like a single point can yeah. can be so significant so on any one section. And so a score of 505 puts you in the top third of writers. A score of 509 puts you in the 80th percentile. And a score of 514 would put you in the 91st percentile. Into Interestingly, even though the scores hypothetically go up to 528, scoring 523 puts you in the 100th percentile. Jesus. Because <laughs> nobody gets full marks on every section. Yeah, so. that's wild. Uh, and this test costs 325 US to write. You can write it three times in a, in a year, four times in any two consecutive years, and no more than seven times in your lifetime. Yeah. So that's the MCAT. It does test some useful things. It's horrifying in essentially every way that a test can be horrifying without it, you know, being administered by that teacher from the fifth Harry Potter book that, you know, <laughs> made. Umbridge. Yeah, Umbridge. But yeah, it's hell. Do you think it is something 
that is going to go by the wayside? Or do you think it's a useful thing for universities to use? I think it has value. I think that it suffers from many, though not all of the problems that we've discussed with standardized testing already on this episode. But I do think that it tests some really useful things. And it tests some more useful things like in the sociology section, there's, uh, there's lots of test questions about bias and about systematic racism and uh, sociological stuff that I'm glad is being covered. Mm-hmm. Some of the psychology that they test on the MCAT is a lot of the stuff that we've discussed on <laughs> uh, on the podcast before that doesn't quite hold up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that it has a lot of value. Uh, I think that it should not cost money to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can get discounts if you don't make a lot of money, but you still have to apply for them. I think that it needs serious overhaul to be equitable mm-hmm. in the way that we would want it to be and in the way to where we want to you know promote this not being just some elite right. stodgy Unlike thing things that, like these prep classes that you're taking should be more widely available sure and not expensive yeah because so you're saying that all of these like tricks that you picked up are so useful yeah and if you can't afford to take the class then that's that brings you from a 500 to a 480 and that's gonna screw you over i'm somebody who always struggled to finish any test on time and i'm now finishing all of the sections uh with time to spare which is astonishing to me especially considering the time constraints so like it's helpful but these test prep places like you know kaplan prep 101 uh, exam crackers, all these places will, uh, they'll charge you between like $1,500 and $2,500 for, uh, you know, like a six to 10 week course. Yeah. That's very expensive. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what I'm getting from a lot of this is that the teaching the study skills and the study strategies are things that students are lacking. And it's only these private, specific test-focused things that are actually teaching that. Now, sometimes they're just teaching, you just need to know this material, drill it into you, and they tutor it. But in some cases, like the MCAT, they're actually teaching you useful information that obviously people are not getting either through their public schooling or private schooling, whatever, their regular education, or even in their post-secondary education. Because people applying to med school have at least some degree of Mm post-secondary education, and they're not getting these things. So that is – it just sounds like the bigger issue is that we're not – learning what we need to learn or or that we're not learning how to apply all that knowledge that we've been given mm-hmm. over the years. So that's a that's a really interesting question, I think. So Laura decided to take this in a direction that I did not expect and she's going to cover citizenship testing, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. So when I got thinking about standardized tests, it sort of came to me that this is another standardized test. And this is something, you know, having been born and raised in Canada, I never had to think about. I don't think anybody in this room has ever had to think about a citizenship test, but it is a required part of becoming a citizen of a lot of countries around the world. I don't know how many countries, but it is very common to have to write or sometimes do an oral test as well. Should have gotten Brendan to come and tell us about his uh, citizenship test. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it is pretty common. A lot of countries will do sort of a a knowledge portion of the test. And and that's what I'm going to talk about mostly. So they'll do that as well as a language proficiency test. Um, And that makes up part of your after you've submitted all the documents and your application and all of that. It's the results of those that 
lets them say yay or nay, you get to become a citizen. Mm -hmm. Now, for the most part, people have to have lived in a certain country for a certain number of years before they become eligible to write it. So in Canada, it's generally about five years that you've had to live here. And uh, so, so we're talking about people who would hopefully have a reasonable understanding of the society in which they live. Like I mentioned, it varies from country to country. A lot of the tests are somewhere between 10 and 20 questions long, and they give you somewhere between half an hour and an hour to write it. So as much as it's a big part of gaining your citizenship, it's actually not, not a huge test. test. You know, it's when we think of and a half hours. <laughs> be, before I started looking into this, I felt I had a feeling that it was going to be a much bigger test, mm-hmm. but it's really not that big or long, especially when you're talking about the MCAT. <laughs> All those questions, like hearing that, yeah, I, gu- I guess that sounds great, but those questions, each of them is so, so important. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> so you do, and, and they do have a high threshold for passing. So for most of them, the average is you have to get at least 75% mm-hmm. to yeah. pass the test. Like I'd want like 50 questions if I had to get a, a high percentage of them right, just to, if I didn't know one, it wouldn't be like terrifying. (laughs) Now, in Canada, our test is a written test. It's 20 questions. It's drawn from a pool of 200 questions. All of those questions are based off a booklet called Discover Canada, which is given to all applicants. Um, and it's a, I forget how many pages it is. It's a fairly large document. It goes through Canadian history. It goes through culture. It goes through laws. It goes through social structure. It goes through all those different things there. And so all of the questions are based off of material from that book. Is it possible to know all 200 questions in advance and just memorize them? No, I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> There's only 200 questions. So the theory is that this booklet covers things that a person born and raised here would know about Canada. And so Mm -hmm. these are important things Mm -hmm. to that new Canadians would also need to know. So we're going to get to that in a little bit. Like other countries <laughs> other countries have similar types of things there. The U.S. has um, practice tests that you can get and a prep guide as well. Now, unlike things like the SAT or the MCAT, there are usually preparatory courses uh, are, that are available. They are usually free, though, and they're often offered through community organizations. Mm-hmm. So um, particularly organizations that are uh, quite close with new uh, immigrant communities, yeah. they generally run these on an ongoing basis for for low or no cost. So there's a lot lower bar to entry and, and to having that support to help you take that test. What is the citizenship like cost to take? Is there, I'm sure there's a bunch of fees for applications and whatnot. There are. It varies. I, I forget. It is much more expensive in the US than it is here to take the citizenship test. Um, but most countries will have some sort of a fee, not huge yeah. for the most part. Like your your application documents costs. and all of that is probably going to cost you way more after all your medical testing and lawyer fees and stuff mm-hmm. than the actual test will for the most part. So this is used as a means to ensure applicants have adequate knowledge about the countries, the laws and the customs, right? You want to make sure that, yeah, you are, you have the knowledge to live here. So in Canada, if you're between 18 and 54 years old and you're applying for citizenship, you're required to write the test. If you're under that age or over that age, you are not required to take the test there. Uh, I don't believe the U.S. has those same types of age restrictions. Probably under 18, you don't have to take it because you're a minor, but older adults would still need to take it. 54 is pretty young. You're still going to need to vote for a lot of years. (laughs) It is. Um, My guess is part of that is that new Canadians 
over the age of 54 are likely coming in the family programs right. and are likely to not have lived here as long and are less likely to have English or French as a as a working language and a lot of those types of things. Whereas, especially as a lot of similar type nations are seeking out those working age yeah, economic class people. To enter the workforce. E- exactly. We're not expecting, you know, grandma and grandpa to come and and work here. And, and so it, it's part of that program. So I'm guessing there's uh, a factor. And also, too, if you're that much older when you arrive, you have had that much less time to absorb Canadian culture and history and and things like that. So even if you've been living here your entire life, but you haven't been a citizen and you decide to become a citizen, you have to take that mm-hmm. test, which is, I believe, similar to what Brendan went through. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now, of course, Every country makes their own tests and decide what goes on the test. And it's very non-standard between countries. So everybody who's applying for a certain country will have to write similar types of tests um, or based on that same pool of questions, how the questions are decided. And that really varies a lot depending on the country. Did you find out if there are any countries that make their politicians take the test? No, but I'm going to get to something similar to that (laughs) as we go on. So and it it covers a range of topics. Like I mentioned, um, History is a big part of it, laws, government structure, just general social structure and sort of how people comport themselves out in the day-to-day world sorts of things. So an example, it is, and this is one of the big problems. So a lot of the same issues that we see with all the other standardized tests become really apparent with these types of things. So one of the examples on the UK citizenship test was a question, are uh, Britons are most well known for either A, going out for fish and chips on for lunch every Friday or B, the ability to laugh at themselves? And the answer is B. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yep. Oh boy. <laughs> it's an MCAT style question. It it really is. And this is where a lot of the questions emerge around these tests. So up until recently, a lot of these tests had very, very high pass rates. The failure rate was less than 10% for a lot of countries. Uh, in the US, the failure rate was only 8%. In Canada, up until recently, it was only 4%. What happens if you fail? In Canada, you can write again. And if you fail again, uh, usually they will make some kind of arrangement for you to be tested in a different way or, you know, do some other type of thing. So it's not like you take it and you're either in or you're out and that's it. Um, it's going to be a longer process for you. But from the bit of research that I did, it sounds like there are options for you. Other countries, I'm not sure exactly. I believe most countries have another option, like are you're able to write again if you need to. You know, most people were doing really well on these. Now, of course, every test needs to be updated every once in a while. And so Canada recently updated our test and the failure rate went from 4% up to 20% after some, some changes there. There's been a bit of a push to try to make things harder. They saw this failure rate go up when the UK updated their test, I believe, in 2015 as well. Denmark is another country that I'll talk about a little bit more. They updated their test to make it significantly harder, and the failure rate went up to 70%. Jesus. Yeah. Denmark 
also has one of the longer tests. So in Canada, we have a 20 question test. In Denmark, it's 40 questions. So it's longer and a lot harder. Well, Something I rotten wouldn't... in the state of Denmark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because Denmark is one of those countries that's becoming more right wing and trying yep. to keep yep. out a bunch of immigrants. It is. Yeah. And so, and that's one of the big criticisms with this. So a lot of the questions, one of the biggest issues that a lot of people have with these questions is that they just like the SAT in that, they cater to certain demographics yeah. of mm-hmm. people. So a lot of them are more relevant to sort of the the whiter people and particularly the older people there. So for example, one of the controversial questions on the, the new Danish exam referenced a popular but older Danish movie series that came out in the late 1960s. So the mm-hmm. question was about which year exactly did the first movie in this series come out. So you have to be a certain age and have lived in in Denmark a very long time to be part of this. Apparently, they asked, uh, in one report, said that they asked one of the people who was in that movie, like a well-known actor, and even even he didn't remember exactly which year it was. No, because he filmed it in a different year. Well, and and because who cares? How does this make you uh, more Danish? Danish, Right? And these types of criticisms, like that English question (laughs) that I asked there, how does that make you more whatever nationality Mm -hmm. than somebody born there. Back to the the right-wing part of it, Denmark's exam was updated around the time that a lot of new strict immigration laws were put in. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of the critics of the government said that they're doing this on purpose to try to deter people from wanting to immigrate there. And while the government did not say no, they some of the government officials did come out in defense of the exam and said, well, citizenship should be earned. So take that for what you will. How many of those politicians earned their citizenship? Exactly. Right? (laughs) Well, and I mean, you're saying that knowing the exact year that this movie was out shouldn't count against you for being Danish, but I just took... I googled Canadian citizenship yeah. exam and I took a quick quiz and like I guessed correctly but I didn't actually know who was the first person to map the eastern coast of the of Canada and I right. don't think that that has much to do with my citizenship. Exactly. So one of the biggest <laughs> criticisms of these tests is that they they end up being just trivia. Mm-hmm. You're you're testing yeah. people on irrelevant trivia. So you're trying to see if somebody understands the culture enough to say like yes, I've lived here I want to be part of this culture. I understand how it works. But you're testing them on things that ultimately don't matter to the culture. I'd love there. to see questions that are like, how would you find out where your nearest polling station is? And that's what a lot of the critics will say, you know, or even just when they put when they do exactly what you did, the pollsters will go out and say, hey, are you a citizen? Were you born here? Try this test. Mm-hmm. And academics and, and lay people alike will will both say, you know, it would be better if people knew how to sign up for things or which authorities to contact if you have this and this issue and, you know, how to comport yourself in general. Like, like some people actually, as funny as we think that UK question is, some people have said, well, you know, it, it is kind of, it's kind of important to know that in English society, laughing at yourself is a way that people deal with things. So understanding that is going to help you be part of that culture and and understand people better and and just everybody's life is going to be a little bit easier if you understand that that's how people get along with things. So even some questions like that, that just that general, you know, maybe questions about lining up or something like that, if it's done in a specific way that you kind of need to know that. Qu- questions about being bad at making sandwiches. <laughs> 
those are the types of questions that a lot of people say should be on these types of tests. Where does because the toilet paper go after you use the bathroom? <laughs> yeah. Important to- those are important things that people need to know about actually living in a place. And like you said, you know, maybe we learned this stuff in school. Maybe we def- didn't. Most of us don't know anymore. Some polls, you know, on Canada Day, there's usually a headline that says, you know, most of Can- Canadians wouldn't pass the citizenship test. And so this year, the, the poll that came out said that 90% would fail because the average score really? for natural born citizens was only about 50% and you need 75% to pass. 90%. I mean, wow. this is a poll of people that of they called, the street, yeah. uh, you know, so it's it, like, I, I think it's somewhat representative, but it's still not huge. Yeah. But still, more of them might pass if they gave a, the pamphlet a glance first. <laughs> right, right. But the thing, but yeah, if it's something in there that I haven't learned since grade seven, yeah. and I haven't had any reason to think about it, it's not just sitting in my brain waiting for that moment that it's like, I know who the first ex- European explorer down the coastline was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's not a functional part of daily Canadian life. Yeah. So then that's the question. And some researchers have actually looked at this. What are we even testing with these things? Are, what is the goal? What is the goal? So a researcher in the U.S. took the U.S. citizenship test and actually did an ex- experiment on a college campus where they tested U.S. citizens and non-U.S. citizens. They just gave them randomized examples of those tests, just mm-hmm. like they would get if they just walked into a citizenship test mm-hmm. and saw how they would do. Um, and so the premise, the theory is that, well, citizens of the U.S. would do better than unprepared non-citizens because these are things that citizens would know. And that didn't come across with that. <laughs> so the only place where citizens consistently did better on the test was on questions about local government. So like, who is your state representative Mm -hmm. and things like that? That was the only place. But for all the other history questions and and things like that, it was probably terrible. It was different. (laughs) For that specific test, too, they looked at it and they said, well, even the structure of the test itself, there isn't the validity and integrity there necessarily. So questions were not uniformly hard. And because it's always these tests are drawn from a pool of questions, they don't all measure the questions that are considered equivalent aren't actually measuring the same thing or are not measuring it to the same degree. So some people are getting much harder tests than other people are. Mm. Or some people are getting this question for this area and that question, but they're very different things. And it's not weighted like the MCAT. Exactly. Yeah. It's not because you it's just thrown together. Mm-hmm. Um, another issue that was noted is a lot of the questions, one person's account of preparing for and taking the test, she took a lot of the, the prep questions that you get and she took them to lawyers and and academics that she knew in her circle. And a lot of them, you know, uh, were the answers that were provided were either flat out wrong, like the the correct answers that you had to learn were either flat out wrong, or the question was so ambiguous that you couldn't reasonably come up with that answer. You're just, again, learning the answer they want and hoping you get that question. Mm -hmm. So one example was, the, the question is, what is the rule of law? What? (laughs) (laughs) You know? And so the lawyers in her life were like, Exactly like you, Lauren. Like, what? (laughs) Um, We can't answer that question in this answer. So there's a lot of questions around that again. So what are we even asking? That's what I would characterize as the unintentional issues with these because the people who are creating the test aren't necessarily trained in making tests or knowing how to balance questions, making sure that randomized tests are put together in appropriately comparable ways. One that I got that is just like a question of definitions. How many Aboriginal people are First Nations? 
and it was a list of percentages. Whoa. <laughs> Apparently the answer is 65%. Yeah. Sounds about okay. right. <laughs> but that's a really hard mm-hmm. distinction. And that would vary depending on when the last time you read, like, so you learned any sociology or history and how up you are on that part of current things. Yeah. That's not something that's widely known. No, I probably could ask 100 Canadians and I would get... 50 blank stares and 50 random guesses. Well, oh, I, no, no, not 50 random guesses. You'd get 50 blank stares, 25 screeds, and 25 guesses. <laughs> and then that's a really scholastic kind of definition that you wouldn't expect your average – I wouldn't expect an average Canadian to know that, at least not in the way that we are presented with information and, and things like that. And mm. I could write a paragraph. Like, yeah, like like there's other things within that. But again, if you're doing a multiple choice test. So anyway, so that those are some of those issues. But then, of course, there's the big issue of misportraying history, because, mm-hmm. of course, somebody has to write these guidebooks. Yeah. Right. So some people will say that um, every time there's a new government, they they rewrite the guidebook with. So there could be some political interference with things in there, whatever the government's agenda of the day is. And, and we do see more or less emphasis on certain topics, depending on who's sitting in the uh, prime minister's office, but also just how things are framed. So people preparing for the UK test were appalled to see how the Elizabethan colonial period was described as a time of high patriotism and left out a lot of the uh, horrible stuff that they did to the people. I'm sure. That's what they were presenting. So I'm sorry, I think I just swallowed something. It might have been my tongue. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty terrible, you know. So in some cases, they want overly complex knowledge of topics. And other times they're giving you, but they're feeding people overly simplistic information or leaving out all of the nuance and requesting overly simplistic answers to very complex problems. So Mm -hmm. it's really not balanced. So the only answer is open borders worldwide. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know, but for something that is so significant in people's lives, these tests are really questionable. They seem sort of arbitrary. They might not be reliable and valid to the extent that we would expect from these types of things. And for all the rigmarole people have to go through, it seems like a really, not redundant, but useless small formality to have to go and sit for a 45-minute test. You know, if you've already put in all the effort to get all your documents in and all of that time and effort, how is 20 questions really going to make the difference of whether you're a citizen or not? If you've Mm -hmm. lived here long enough and you've put in all that effort and you want to be here, I think you deserve to be here. I'm only here because I got born here. I didn't have to do anything to do it. So if you put in all that effort, you get it. Just had a a quick list of like 10 horrible standardized tests from around the world to finish things off. Sure. So... Here in Canada, we definitely don't have it the worst as far as end of the school period standardized testing in order to get into university and whatnot. So the UK has the A-level tests and also has, at the age of 16, you have to take like 15 or 20 exams in order to keep going in high school, which is just wild. Your owls. Yeah, pretty much. That's what those are based on. Yeah, Yeah, the L's and the newts are based on the the O's and the A's. O's and the A's, yeah. Everybody in Finland has to take one giant matriculation examination at the end of high school. If you don't do really well in it, you pretty much can't go on to fulfill all of your big dreams. 
which is a lot to put on someone who's like 17. There's an exam in Japan, which determines if you get into high school or not. Oh, wow. So that's special. Getting into high school. That's ridiculous. <laughs> there is also an exam to get into university in Japan called uh, the National Center Test for University Admissions. And if you come from a wealthy family, they will start prepping you for it in kindergarten. Oh my God. No, thanks. In China, uh, there is the, quote, mother of all standardized test, the, I'm going to mispronounce this, Gaokao, or the higher examination. It is 12 hours long and features sections on Chinese, English, <laughs> math, and a choice of either sciences or humanities. It is multiple choice taken over two days. And upon completion, students are given their three-digit score, which determines what college they'll get into and their earnings potential. You take it uh -huh. in grade three. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost like the Oxford exam. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so in India, they have a standardized high school completion exam called National Boards, which are sent to colleges and universities. But in addition to that, you also have to take separate college entrance exams for every college that you apply to. So you can Ooh. end up taking dozens of them before you actually go to college. And that's one of the challenges with non-standardized tests, yeah. right? Like They have a quote here from uh, a mother, uh, Jaya Samadar, says, The score of the child has become a status symbol. If we go to a party these days, everybody asks me, how is your child doing? No one asks about my health. The question is, what is your child's academic status? <laughs> mm. So we don't have it the worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining me, everyone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Before we go, uh, I just wanted to let our listeners know that our good friend Ian James, who does all of the music for Life, the Universe, and everything else, uh, has a new single out called Fangs of Winter. It's available on SoundCloud, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Check it out. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? Uh, we're going to go old school, and we're going to do more conspiracy theories. There's always more out there, and it's fun to talk about them. Nice. Sounds fun. All right. We'll Excellent. see you then. Have Good night, night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Life. Don't talk to me about life. Also, I always have this weird anxiety when I'm introducing you all that I'm going to forget someone's name. <laughs> It's, it's so funny. Sorry, Jem, you had a, something else you were going to say there? Oh, sorry. That was probably just a tick that you saw with oh, me okay. suppressing the urge to say never trust a corporation. I, I thought he was just going to say, oh, you know, capitalism is bad. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say it until I was asked. <laughs> we all saw you thinking it, honey. <laughs> this whole segment is capitalism is bad and we're just making more little worker drones. Every episode of our show is capitalism is bad, okay? It is. <laughs> There's our Time thesis. Time for rebranding. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. <laughs>